This is MPB News. Hi, this is Ashley Norwood. Thanks for checking out the At Issue podcast. If you like what you hear, please like, rate, or leave a comment. Subscribe to this and other MPB News productions, like Mississippi Edition, to stay up to date. Don't forget to tell your friends about us, too. You can also watch At Issue on MPB TV, Friday nights at 7.30, or on mpbonline.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Desiree Frazier with MPB News. Welcome to another edition of At Issue Podcast, where we discuss and debate the issues facing the state of Mississippi and how these issues impact you. Mississippi is recovering from a historic winter weather storm. After record freezing temperatures, sleet and snow, thousands of residents remain without power or low to no water pressure. Because of these conditions, we're not producing our regularly scheduled television show. But In order to keep our commitment to provide you with the latest from the Capitol, MPB News is bringing you a podcast conversation with our at-issue political analyst, Austin Barber, a national Republican strategist and founder of the Clearwater Group, and Brandon Jones, an attorney and former Democratic member of the House. Good to see you both. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Hey, Desiree. Hey, Austin. Good to be with you. Let's begin with Austin. What do you make of this historic winter weather right now that we're going through? I make that it sucks. Let me just lead with that. I'm not going to miss the force for the trees on this. Um, personally, it's pretty bad uh, for us as we don't have power in our house. We are going on night three without power. We certainly are, are not the only one in Mississippi who's dealing with that. I talked to someone today who said they were nearly about fifteen to 20,000 people just in Hines County. Uh, who are part of the energy uh, systems, who customers who don't have power. But look, these guys are doing the best they can. I know Intergy cut their, uh, those without power in half um, in a day or two. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'm the next half, Brandon, because otherwise you better get the couch ready for us, man. Well, it's it's always open for you, buddy. And and look, I'm I feel for uh, families like Austin and, and Desiree. So many families across Mississippi. We we live in a in a poor state. We talk about that from time to time, and we we have a lot of citizens in our state who live right at that margin of life and death, even under the best of circumstances. And so, you think about people who are homeless during these times. You think about people who rely on medicines. You think about people who rely on having roads and and it's, it's an incredibly difficult time. I was looking at some of the statistics. We have more than 250,000 Mississippians that have lost power. Um, roads have been affected in 74 of our 82 counties. Um, so I'm, I'm, pulling, I'm pulling for Austin and his family. I'm pulling for other families. And look, we, we need to mention there are line men and women that are out there working around the clock, water department employees, road engineers, highway patrol, police officers, this really taxes the infrastructure of our state. And so uh, just thinking of those people, not to mention the hundreds of schools and colleges across the country and hundreds of students across you know, our state that haven't been able to 
participate in class after already having their work disrupted by the pandemic. Um, and I don't know how much, you know, you've looked at this, Austin, but the total economic impact just across the country, it looks like it's going to be tremendous. Like I saw a report today that predicted it to be around $50 billion and that the uh, natural gas prices have already risen 7%. Um, and that's before you even get to farming impact and other. So it's just a tremendous impact. I think we'll be feeling this for a long time. Yeah. And, and you think about, and I wanted to mention this, the small businesses who've just been crushed all throughout 2020 because of COVID. And then, you know, here this is, look, if you're trying, if you're a small restaurant or, or a convenience store, but how the convenience stores open, whatever your business is that relies on foot traffic, relies on people to come in your store to buy things. This has not been a good week for you. you you've struggled to survive in COVID. And then all of a sudden this hits, I, I, I feel for those folks. I, I really do. Now I, I have to tell you um, that, the people in MDOT deserve some credit too. They get crushed all the time, but they're not doing this and they're not doing that. Obviously, this is not the type of situation that the Mississippi Department of Transportation was built to, to survive and, and be able to battle. And they do the best that they possibly can. But I will tell you, we were trying to, I was not, I obviously was not on the show last Friday because we were out of town uh, with a family vacation and trying to maximize President's Day so the kids would miss as, as few days as possible. And we were trying to figure out how to get home. So we had to fly to Birmingham and then drive to Jackson on Wednesday, late evening, early evening. And I will tell you, MDOT's Twitter account was fantastic. They were telling you exactly which county, which road. Whether It, it wasn't just like, oh, well, by the way, you can't get on I-20 or you can't get on 55. No, it was in... Tishomingo County or Yalabusha County or Lauderdale County. It was very good. So the folks at MDOT, uh, particularly the folks that, that you know, are, are, were handling their um, social media accounts, that was super helpful as we were trying to navigate our way back home. Everything, everything counts. That's, that's true. That's true. Because I know I couldn't get out of my driveway, so I couldn't make it to the store, couldn't do anything. But you are right. We did follow MDOT. And you could see the cameras, um, you saw what the roads looked like, you saw where they, there were obstructions and where the roads were slippery and icy. So um, kudos to everyone who has helped Mississippians to get through this week. Well, moving on, it's the seventh week of the 2021 legislative session. The unprecedented winter storm brought some work under the legislative dome, the Capitol dome, nearly to a halt. Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, said during Monday's session, he had proposed pushing back legislative deadlines by a week to accommodate the storm, but Senate leadership denied the proposal. Brandon, what impact do you think this will have on the legislative calendar that they've had to uh, push back what they intended to do this week? We, we talk about... Um, meetings and, and Zoom meetings that should have been emails. Uh, Desiree, this was a legislative week that should have been an email. There, there was really no reason to um, have the session this week. Speaker Gunn was exactly right to make that request. I heard him say the same thing during his opening comments on Monday. Um, I, I think it was irresponsible for Lieutenant Governor and the Senate to uh, force people back under these conditions. And when you look at what was accomplished, the only substantive um, 
piece of general policy that was subject to a deadline was a voter purging bill, Senate Bill 2588. Um, and so I just, it's disheartening to think that we would force ourselves back under these conditions simply to take up that. The rest of it was, and let's face it, they, just a lot of sitting around. Um, members didn't have a lot to do this week. And, and what was done was sort of pro forma. And so I think that's, that's unfortunate. And, um, you know, will it, what effect does it have moving forward? Frankly, not much. I mean, the deadlines next week are the February 24th, deadline for floor action on appropriations and revenue bills. And what typically happens at this first pass on revenue bills and past sessions is a lot of dummy bills are filed. A lot of um, bills just as sort of placeholders are moved through the process because the legislature is still in the process of getting some of those final figures in place, trying to figure out what the complete budget will look like. So while you have some of that work starting now, we're not going to be anywhere near a final budget by Wednesday of this week, but that wouldn't have been the case anyway. So moving things back a week would have been fine. As it stands, though, we probably don't lose a lot of ground. Um, they'll come back. Committees will begin to meet. General bills will kind of perhaps be taken up in some committees, but I don't think it'll have too big of an impact on the calendar moving forward. Austin, what do you think it means for the upcoming deadline? Nothing. I, I kind of agree with Brandon. Uh, it, it, it'll all be fine. The, the, in my view, the big deadline is, is March the 2nd, which is the committee deadline. So if you pass a bill in the House, it goes over to the Senate, it gets preferred to whatever committee in the Senate. It's got to come out of that committee in the Senate by March the 2nd, which is um, you know, Tuesday, March the 2nd. That's the deadline that's really, really important. Um, you know, a lot of bills can get passed out of, out of one chamber. Can they get passed out of that next chamber is obviously the most important part. And got first step is getting out of committee. Brandon knows that process very well as a former member. So uh, March the 2nd is the important one. And they still have all next week and then the following Monday and Tuesday to, to have committee meetings to get the bills out that, that leadership and committee chairs see as the priorities that they want to get out of committee. Okay. Well, a number of senators convened in person this week, as we were talking about, some did go to the Capitol, despite the snow and ice, and many of them needed assistance to get around from their colleagues, but they managed to get there. Monday was the deadline to pass legislation held in a motion to reconsider in each chamber, and remaining on the Senate calendar was Senate Bill 2855. Now, that's the bill um, we have talked about in the past. That's the voter purging bill. Mississippians who don't vote within a two-year period will receive a notification in the mail to confirm or update their information. If they fail to do so and don't vote in four years, their names will be removed from the rolls. And now that bill heads to the House for consideration. So that is one thing that moves forward that um, was controversial and remains controversial. Any thoughts on that? And I well, put this to both of you. Sure. And Desiree, yeah, I think, I think it's problematic. You know, the Voting Rights Act, um, parts of it have been struck down in recent years, but a part that remains is that you can't punish a voter simply for choosing not to vote. 
And, you know, uh, registered voters have the prerogative to participate in elections that are of interest to them. People like Austin and me, we wish people would vote in every race. We wish people would vote in every local, state and federal race. But we also recognize that, you know, people have that choice and sometimes they choose not to vote. And what the Voting Rights Act says very plainly is that you can't take somebody off a voting list for simply doing that. Now, what our Mississippi legislature is trying to do here is trying to get in on the more aggressive voter purging laws that have passed in some states like Ohio. The difference is in Ohio, the bill that got so much attention and that was brought before the Supreme Court, it allowed people to go two years without voting, and then they would receive a card. And then they would um, either respond to that card or not respond to that card. Then they were put on a four-year probationary period, uh, where uh, at the end of that time, if they did not vote, then they could be removed. That's a six-year period. And that is considered right now and across the United States to be a fairly aggressive voter purging bill. Well, now what Senate Bill 2855 does, Desiree, it's even more aggressive than that, because what it says is at the end of a period of not voting, you receive a card, and depending on how you handle that card, then you can be removed for the rolls. And so you have, a, you have a smaller time period, you have a little bit of gumbo in terms of the ambiguity over like when you receive the card and why you receive the card and what are the various triggering effects of that. And so it's a little bit um, more aggressive than even the Ohio bill. So, yeah. And, and look, we live in Mississippi. We have a particular history on voting in this state. And we have a re fairly recent history of disenfranchising people, primarily black people. And the fact that we would come back in an ice storm in the middle of a pandemic to make it more likely that lawful voters are removed from the voting rolls, I think is a bad statement of our priorities. And I wish we hadn't done it. Austin, the majority of Republicans support this measure. Yeah, you know, here's what I think. I think that we don't have enough nuance in debates because of damn social media, excuse me, sure I'm going to get in trouble for that. We have too many, you have to say, it has to be yes, or it has to be no, or you have to have one talking point for this or for that. And that's really frustrating because this is a complicated issue. It's not black and white. It's not yes or no. There are some things with this bill that I agree with. There are some things with this bill that I disagree with. So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, I think this bill is great. I think this bill is terrible. Listen, what I know is that I agree with Brandon that we shouldn't penalize people if they don't want to vote. There were a lot of people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008. They probably hadn't voted in 20 or 30 years. There were a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. They probably hadn't voted in 20 or 30 years. That is their freaking right. If they don't want to vote, and they're out committing crimes or doing other things that takes their vote, their right to vote away, and that's okay. But listen, I, I, I'm a strong believer in that. But listen, I am also a strong believer in, I only want those people who are voting to be someone who's supposed to be voting. So there is this nuance. There is this balance to, you know, those in, in, in my party 
uh, and I've been doing elections since I was a little kid, who believe that there are irregularities, that there are things that go wrong, that there are some shenanigans that go on. And so we, we fight uh, for, to, you know, to make sure that those people that are voting are, are the people that are supposed to be, to, to be voting. So there's this balance to this. And I, 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 I think, I hope this bill's got a long way to go. Got to go through the house, probably going to end up in conference. It's got a long way to go. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think this is where, you know, Brandon sort of feels like this is about trying to disenfranchise. And I'm not trying to put words in Brandon's mouth. You do, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but if this is about trying to disenfranchise um, the rights uh, to vote of, of African-Americans. Um, and if you don't, if that's not what you said, tell me it's not what you said. But I don't think that's what this is about. This is trying to find the best possible process we can have to make sure that people vote. I'm sorry, to make sure that those who are voting are the people who are supposed to vote. But it is a real balancing act. And I've tried to do the best job I can here with some nuance on this, um, with, with how I very long-windedly answered this question. But it ain't a yes or no thing, man. It's just not. Well, we appreciate your observation. Yeah, no, it's right. And and Desiree, I think, I think Austin is right to appreciate the, the, the nuance that, that does accompany some of these issues. I will say one particular piece of nuance that was kind of glossed over during the Senate debate is that we currently have laws on the books in Mississippi that allow elections officials to remove dead voters or voters who move out of a precinct from the voting rolls of that particular precinct. And that's which one of the most, a good thing. Which, which should be a good thing. The problem that the, you know, I think is cited by the secretary of state and lieutenant governor is that, well, that's not being used. The problem with this law is it doesn't ensure that, because we all know that that's largely a personnel question. Like the yeah. laws are on the books right now that allow counties to remove those people that we all agree should not properly be on a roll because they're deceased or because they've moved away. But see, the problem with this bill is it doesn't provide for additional training. It doesn't provide yeah. for more personnel. And so it really takes what we already have and makes it kind of a, a slightly more aggressive. And, and let me let me say one last point here as I sort of went through this, how I think you deserve the right to vote, when you find the candidates you want to vote for, whether that's once every 20 years or in every single election. But, you know, I, I make this argument that, you know, I believe in those who, who, those who are voting should be who they are and live in that precinct, live on that street, live in that house. But so there is some onus on the voter that if you want to make sure that this is a, quote, fair election, well, you might have to do something. You may have to check that box, even though you're not going to vote, but one time every decade because it's Barack Obama or one time every decade because it's Donald Trump and that's your person that inspires you. There may be something that that newly has to be put on you that is checking that box on that postcard that gets mailed to you that you send back to say or going down to the courthouse once every four years. Again, this is a, this is a balancing act and, and I've this, this is not going to be decided. This cannot be decided, you know, with one bill that comes through the state Senate. It's going to take the whole process, and it may take multiple years. You're right. I do, I do want to say one thing, Desiree. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to say one thing. This is going to make Austin mad because it's not as nuanced as he wants it to be. But this is a use it or lose it law. This, this takes a constitutional right and says the extent to which you don't use it, we're going to take it away from you. 
And that's yeah, where the constitutional yeah. problem comes in. Yeah, and, and, and I, I, you are simplifying it, and I don't think that's fair. It can't be that, Brandon. It can't be. It can't be a use it or lose it. So, I, I, anyway, we've talked this thing to death. And, and it's not over, so it's going to be an issue for some weeks to come. But for the first time in Mississippi history, lawmakers convened virtually this week through Zoom. And Gunn said that there were a handful of bills on the House calendar, but due to the weather, he consulted with committee chairs and they decided to let those bills die. The House and Senate are scheduled to come back on Monday, but here is a bill that we want to talk about. Senate, the Senate passed 2727. It would allow the governor and lieutenant governor to alternate appointing new Mississippi Department of Archive and History trustees for six-year terms. The Senate would then confirm the appointments. Right now, the State Department of Archives and History Board approves its own new members when someone resigns or when a term ends and the selection is forwarded to the Senate for confirmation. This is becoming another heated issue. Now, during the debate on the Senate floor this week, some Democratic members expressed concern over the bill, saying it's coming out of nowhere and would place a bunch of political appointees in charge of the Civil Rights Museum. Republican members say they're concerned because the board is one of the only in the state that picks its own members. Republican Senator John Polk of Hattiesburg said the board's diversity of thought as far as archives and especially history may be a little myopic and he believes the state needs some new thought on the board. Austin, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, again, this is, this is a, <laughs> deserves a bunch of discussion on this. I, I can see it's pretty funny. I can I can agree with much of what John Polk says, but I can agree with a lot of what Hi Brian says. Those, those are two polar opposites at times on, on issues uh, in the Mississippi State Senate. You know, first, look, I, I have dealt uh, on behalf of clients with with uh, archives and history. It is one of the best run state agencies in Mississippi. Uh, Katie Blunt, who's the executive director um is 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 a fantastic leader uh for mississippi does a great job running uh this agency uh i know some of the members uh i know some of the board members personally um and that some of them are, are, are close friends who are really talented and good people who care about mississippi um and and i know that they do the best job they possibly can on that board and whether they were appointed by uh, the board itself, nominated and, and 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 elected, selected by the board itself, or they were these were whether they were uh, selected by the the governor, the lieutenant governor. They are that kind of top quality people. So, uh, but on the flip side, you know, we talked about um, the division of Medicaid the other day, and one of the points that I made about that was I think these you know the more responsibility that the governor has as a statewide elected chief elected position holder in the state of Mississippi has to the voters, whether he, whether he or she is doing right or wrong is a good thing. So I'm not trying to talk out of, out of both sides of my mouth here. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure on what is the best move here with, with, with this issue. This is a very well run state agency. 
there are very qualified people who are who are on this board. Uh, these are the kind of people that if they were appointed by the governor, lieutenant governor, would be appointed by the lieutenant governor or governor. Uh, I certainly understand what Senator Polk says. And, you know, let's let the governor uh, and the lieutenant governor make appointments to these boards versus having the the board itself uh, nominate um, nominate and make appointments, um, which basically means that they, you know, kind of the power source continues to, to stay in control. Um, I, I kind of feel like this is, you know, we, we, we have a solution, but it, we don't really have a problem. It's kind of where I land on this just because it's such a well-run organization. Um, I, but I'm, 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 Brandon, I'm not trying to be all over the place here but I, I have opposing views within my own head on this. No, I've, I've enjoyed listening to you talk, Austin. I don't know if it's the cold That's weather. That's the first time you'll ever well, see I Well, I don't know if it's the cold weather or not, but you're just being particularly reasonable. Um, I think uh, Austin said it very well. This is one of our most successful governmental entities in the state. When you look at the rollout recently, Desiree, of the handling of the Mississippi museums, you know, the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, the Mississippi Museum of History. There are a few things that have been wonderful state calling cards in the way that the rollout of those museums were. And now they are national, nationally recognized destination spots. Students from across this state have come there. And, and that's, you know, a tribute to these board members. It's a tribute to the work the department has done. Um, there's only one Department of Archives and History in the country that is older than ours, and that's in Alabama. And it was started, I believe, in like 1901. And yeah, by one year. It, yeah, and it has a self-perpetuating board, the same as Mississippi's. Um, I would point out that, you know, all of these appointees, even though it is self-perpetuating, all of these appointees are subject to Senate approval. So they still do have Senate approval as part of the process for becoming a part of this board. So there is governmental oversight um, and certainly their, their uh, appropriations are controlled by the Senate. So there is a lot of control that exists as it's currently comprised. I'm with Austin in terms of questioning why you do this. And, and I'll say something that I don't think Austin will say. The Lieutenant Governor Hoseman um, is is, is frankly someone who has been uh, very proficient at, at working with state agencies throughout his career. He, he's done a lot of work in terms of trying to make state agencies more efficient, and I think he's to be commended for that. But he's also kind of a classic micromanager. There's hardly anything that comes within his, his line of vision that he doesn't tinker with a little bit. And I think sometimes he has been criticized for over tinkering with problems. He kind of likes to kind of mess around with a little bit of all of it. I think this is an example of messing with something that is not broken. And absolutely, the legislature has more pressing things to do. I, I sort of wonder, Desiree, is this the type of thing you get when a state legislature comes back year after year after year and feels the need to pass general bills? Like, do we really need this? Is this really a place where you're... Uh, oversight and, and changing of a, of a successful governmental entity is needed. Well, I, I, I want to give a counterpoint on your Delbert Hoseman observation. Look, I think he just wants state government to be run as well as it possibly can. Um, you, you define that as a micromanager. I, I define it as a guy who is saying, listen, what do I need to do to try to make these things 
to make state government work as well as it can for, for taxpayers. And listen, th- th- obviously, this bill doesn't have his name on it. And you may respond, look, there's nothing that gets to the state Senate that the lieutenant governor doesn't want. Eh, I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. Um, but anyway, this 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 is a this is a, a, a great debate on for, for a very serious issue um, about, you know, how we uh, fulfill these boards and committees. So um, and do they all have to be done the same way? That's what, well, no, they don't. Um, but I think, you know, each one is different. Um, you know, this is, this is not the same as uh, IHL or the Gaming Commission or, um, you know, State Department of Health and so on and so forth. The measure did pass along party lines and it does now head to the House. We're going to move on to the MFLEX Act. Later in the week, lawmakers in the Senate did agree on one thing the Mississippi Flexible Tax Incentive Act, or MFLEX. Senators voted unanimously Thursday to pass Senate Bill 2822. It's a plan legislators hope will simplify state incentives based on how many jobs a business creates and the type of wages and benefits they provide. It says that companies that are awarded MFLEX will be required to provide health insurance for their employees and file an annual report to the state for the purpose of accountability. Uh, Brandon, what has been the issue for existing tax incentives in the state as you know it? The criticism has long been that there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to how our state did what it's done to try to entice businesses to come to Mississippi. And so it it has seemed like these packages have been put together sort of um, on an individualized basis. And of course that leads to inequity. It leads to kind of a failure to, to, to uh, be able to predict what, what comes next from a business standpoint. And so I think that's why you saw broad bipartisan support of this uh, act, which, which attempts to kind of right size all of this Desiree so that the incentives remain the same and transparency exists with respect to which credits are available and how a business can qualify for more credits. And then, as I understand it, it's going to simplify the application process, which, of course, is very welcome from businesses who currently are having to go through some pretty complicated uh, hoops in order to get, you know, up and running. So I think just from a good government standpoint, this is a, a good piece of legislation that will give us a predictable system that really, and I should say this, it really incentivizes good behavior too. Because for example, your um, incentives go up if you provide health coverage for your employees. And in the past, we've been sold on incentive programs on the promise of jobs. Like, hey, this company's going to come in and produce this many jobs. And I know you've been there, you know, covering the capital and you've seen that before. Um, where they say we're going to have this many hundreds of jobs. And then we sit around five years later and realize, well, that didn't really happen. Um, Under this formula, as you provide a certain number of jobs, the incentives increase. And so that type of specificity and that type of granular, um, you know, precision, I think is going to help both the business community and those of us who are taxpayers and observing the process to feel like, you know, we're getting the right bang for our buck. Austin, do you like this bill? 
Yeah, I do. It's really hard to – and I heard um, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman on uh, Paul Gallo's show last week, and it was hard for me to try to pick anything negative apart by the way that um, Governor Hoseman described it. I've seen some quotes from Senator uh, David Parker of DeSoto County, who was the, uh, the the chairman of the committee that's responsible for this bill, and I believe he's the sponsor of the bill itself. It, it just seems, as Brandon said, to really simplify this process. Um, it's very transparent, not, not just for the companies that are applying for these tax credits, but for the taxpayers as well. So the taxpayers can see, oh, this is how much money and uh, tax credits that we gave um, to this business that moved in, whether it has 10 jobs or 10,000 jobs. So I think that's, I think that's a good thing. Um, and, you know, look, because what we got to get back to, we got to get back to working to incentivize our economic developers, making their job as easy as possible so that they can go out and recruit new businesses new jobs because you know it's tough when we're competing against texas and florida and tennessee who have no state income tax um and who have other things that are more attractive than mississippi does so we we, we've got to make it as easy as we possibly can for um our very capable and talented local economic developers um because it's not just it's not just the folks in mda they're they're working their tail off to, to get new business here but it's the folks that at the uh, at the county and the city level, um, who are economic developers who are working to bring jobs in too. So I, I think this is a, a a really good tool for them to use. And it's a bill that Republicans and Democrats both agreed on. It's a good thing. In the House, lawmakers are considering a plan to allow voters to decide whether to temporarily increase the state's tax on gas to pay for specific highway projects. That's a bill, um, 1364. Some funds would also be used to improve local roads and bridges. Republican Representative Trey Lamar of Senatobia authored the bill. A lot of intricacies in it. It's kind of complicated, but just on the surface, this would be a bill that the whole state would have the opportunity to vote on. Mississippians would decide if they want to increase the gas tax temporarily for highway projects. Austin, where do you stand on that? You, you think that's a, a good move to have voters say, yes, we're willing to increase a, a, a gas tax temporarily? Well, what I see as a good move is that Trey Lamar has, is proving to be um, a member of the legislature who is not scared to tackle complicated issues. Um, improving our infrastructure is a complicated issue. Uh, the legislature passed a bill last year or two years ago. They all kind of run together. I think it was two years ago. Um, that was obviously going to utilize um, new money from new revenues from the state lottery uh, that could be used to uh, tackle our infrastructure problems. But look, we're always going to have infrastructure problems. You can never have enough money for, for, for improving roads, improving bridges, um, improving our dams, improving our ports, improving you know all these things, and and I applaud uh, Trey Lamar for for trying to figure out what's the best solution here. I I, I this is a this is um, 
a long bill. I have not had a chance to talk to him personally. I really would like to talk to him personally uh, before I try to get you know super detailed about this because I, I know his heart is in the is in the right place here, which is to find the best option um, or give or give or give um, lawmakers, give MDOT, give voters multiple options um, on what's the best way to to go do this. So I, I, I applaud him for this because again. It's a it's a super complicated issue, but it's one that's got to be consistently addressed. Brandon, what do you think about the bill? Why not just raise the gas tax across the board and not go to the voters? Well, congratulations, Representative Trey Lamar, on making another episode of that issue. He, he's um, he's been a popular figure. He 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 keeps. Uh, he, as Austin, Austin characterized it as, you know, not being afraid to take on big things. And I think that's undeniable this year. He, he's really Department of Medicaid and now this. Um, Desiree, um, there is really does not take much political analysis to know why Republicans don't want to just pass a tax and wants to put it to the voter because it puts a degree of separation between them and the decision. Um, and so I think it's just politically safer. But I'll say this. Our infrastructure problems in Mississippi um, are in some ways, as Austin described them, they are constant. The nature of our soul uh, means that we have greater expenses than some other places do. Um, But we haven't been attentive to these issues. Uh, If you talk to business community leaders, they will tell you without question that our state has not done a proper job of maintaining roads and bridges, which are so vital, not only to safety, but also to uh, attractiveness of the state and to people wanting to be here. Um, So this is a huge issue that cannot be swept under the rug. I think that Representative Lamar appreciates that if we don't do something fairly dramatic, we're going to fall further and further behind because this is like maintenance of any other kind. If you don't address it one year, it doesn't stay the same, it gets worse. And so as this problem has gotten worse, the the issues related to fixing it become more expensive. And so we have to start putting more money into these projects. I personally think we have an obligation. This is one of those governmental roles that is crucial to a state, particularly a state like Mississippi. And we have to figure this out. So I applaud any effort to go down this path. Um, You know, the House has proposed an increased gas tax before. This is not the first time this has come up. It could be that adding this layer of a vote might make it more palatable. They might think this might make it something that the Senate will consider. So I I think that's why he did it that way. And it might be uh, in his calculation, the only way that it passes. Well, the lottery was supposed to be not the complete answer, but a part of the answer to helping the state with what it, what it needed for roads and bridges. But um, is that falling too, too short? Well, it's, it's I think... Um, too early to tell. Yeah, the, the results are kind of mixed. And, and, it's, and to Austin's point, it is early. So we just don't know exactly how much. But I, I do think we can safely say that we, we need to be finding revenue from these projects and we don't have it on hand at this moment, that, that the lottery is not providing that type of revenue at this moment. But uh, to Austin's point, we're still early. It's still early days. That, that thing could ramp up and we hope it does. But at this particular snapshot in history, it's, it doesn't have the money to cover these projects. Yeah, I, I think all reports are the lottery has done really well. 
um, I think really well would be 85 to $100 million that it's able to, to put into these projects. But I don't have those numbers in front of me. But Okay. Moving on, the State Department, or rather the State Department, where did that come from? The Health Department is reporting 360 new cases of the coronavirus today and three deaths. That brings the totals in Mississippi to nearly 290,000 cases and more than 6,500 deaths since March of 2020. Now, earlier this week, experts at the health department announced the coronavirus variant has been identified in the state. And I'm talking about the one that was first um, noticed in England. It is in Mississippi now, and experts say the variant is known to spread more easily and quickly than other coronavirus variants. And state officials are expanding surveillance, saying it's likely that more cases will be identified they're urging Mississippians to wear a mask, observe social distancing, avoid large gatherings, wash their hands frequently, all the things that um, have been advised throughout the year dealing with this pandemic. And they're also advising everyone who is eligible to get the vaccine. So we're approaching a year since Mississippi saw its first coronavirus case. What are your thoughts, Brandon, about what has transpired? Well, I'm, I'm very grateful that the vaccine is making its way to communities, including our most vulnerable communities. I am uh, very proud of our Department of Health and the people who have been, you know, trying to get vaccine into the arms of as many Mississippians as possible. Um, I think when you compare what's happened in Mississippi to some other states, we can take some pride in the way the process has gone here. We still are trying to um, close all of those information gaps. And of course, uh, events this week, Desiree set us back some, you know, we had to cancel some appointments and, and that's always a problem. And um, these, these vaccines have expirations on them. So, you know, they're, they're trying to get them out in a timely manner. Time does matter, but I'm pleased with that. When it comes to the variant, I think the takeaway for me is we have to continue to stay vigilant. It's easy to let your guard down whenever people you know begin to get vaccinated. It's easy to let your guard down when you yourself become vaccinated. So I think it's important to remember that based on what we've been told by the experts, you still can carry the virus during this time. So continuing to wear a mask, continuing to wash hands, continuing to socially distance. You know, I've urged the governor um, in as many ways as I know how to continue to have a clear voice on doing the safe things that we know help prevent spread of the vaccine. And even with this variant, Desiree, you know, the word is mask help, washing hands help, social distancing help. So I think, I hope, you know, my, my sincere hope is that Mississippians will continue to be careful. I just looked at the numbers, by the way, 40% down in cases nationwide over the last 14 days. That's a good thing. I mean, we all wanna see this, this pandemic come to a close. Um, I think now, the, the, the thing is, as we get closer and closer to light at the end of the tunnel, let's just continue to be safe. Austin, your thoughts on that? You know, my thoughts are, um, I, I, it feels like we're headed down a pathway. And look, I'm no expert on this new variant, new strain. I, I, I know very little about it. I'm just trying to survive not having electricity and what Brandon's going to say to be mean to me today. Um, 
I'm, I'm trying to make him laugh. Uh, but listen, what, what I what I am hopeful for, and I think that's where we are, is we're headed sort of down this pathway, sort of back to normalcy. Um, and I, you know, I think we all, I know we all want our businesses to be open, our small businesses to be back thriving, um, waiters and waitresses and bartenders um, and hosts and hostesses at, at restaurants to be able to fully go back to work. Uh, all these businesses who have suffered, uh, we, we all want that. We all want to go to a high school football game and, and, and the place be packed again. Uh, that, that's where we all hope that we are. And I think Brandon is right. We got to continue to try to be smart as we, you know, go down that path towards the, towards the world that I just described that we all remember and want back. And man, I hope we're talking weeks and months uh, before we get there and, 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 and not something longer. I Listen, and I think the governor uh, and the uh, State Department of Health and the Mississippi National Guard deserve a lot of credit on getting these vaccinations out. I know we're over 100,000 vaccinations. There's no question that when they first started the process, there were a lot of bumpy roads, but they quickly figured it out. And Tate Reeves deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, and, you know, I haven't gotten my vaccination yet, but I hope that I shortly can go can go get mine. Um, but I'm just glad that my, my parents who are 80 years old hopefully have gotten their second shot. Uh, and there are a lot of people that are their age and, 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 in, and in between their age and my age who've done the same thing. So that's, that's obviously all very much positive. Yeah, and for this week with the storms, there were people that were scheduled for vaccinations and those dates are going to have to be changed so that they can get in and get their shots. Moving on. We are going to talk next about the NAACP um, lawsuit. The NAACP and Mississippi's only Democratic Congressman, Benny Thompson, have sued former President Donald Trump, alleging he incited the Capitol riot on January 6th in violation of a Reconstruction era law called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. The civil complaint comes after former President Trump was acquitted over the weekend by the Senate in his second impeachment trial, which focused on the Capitol riot. The lawsuit also names former New York City mayor and close Trump ally, his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and two white extremist groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Austin, does this lawsuit have a chance of holding the former president accountable for the January 6th riot in your estimation? I would, I, I know very little about this lawsuit. I probably would let Brandon go first, but I, I will say, I, I, I would assume I doubt it. Um, Brandon, what do you think? Do you think there should be a lawsuit? Do I think there should be a lawsuit? Uh, no, yes. look, I don't think that, I would, I, no, I don't think there should be a lawsuit. Do I think that what, um, what President Trump and and Rudy Giuliani did uh, hours before the events that happened at the Capitol when the Capitol was breached for the first time since uh, 1814. Do I think that he, he has some fault in that? Yes, I do. Um, um, I, I, I do think that. Um, but but those faults will be uh, marred on his legacy. Um, I, I, you know, I, who am I to tell Benny Thompson or the NAACP or whomever that they can or cannot set, uh, file a lawsuit? They can do whatever they want to. Um, I don't think it's merited. Um, 
but that's just my opinion. All right, Brandon, your opinion on this. You know, I, I've, I've thought about um, the statements of Senator Mitt Romney, who said, you know, we do want unity, but we recognize that to get to unity, we're going to have to inject truth into this situation. And the problem with the uh, impeachment hearing, and it did, didn't bring that sense of clarity uh, and it didn't bring the sense of justice. The truth of the matter is Austin is right. I mean, these are serious, serious grave acts that require consequence. And it's not enough to say, you know, a small percentage of Republicans acknowledge the truth. There are still people out there who are animated by the big lie. The big lie being that this election was stolen when there is no indication that that is the case. This is an interesting case. I'll tell you, legally speaking, this is an underused um, part of the federal code. It's 42 USC 1985-1, and it's called the Ku Klux Klan Act. And this act, which was passed back in 1871 during Reconstruction, it basically said that you can't use violence or intimidation to prevent a member of Congress from carrying out their constitutional duties. Now, based on all the facts that we know, based on what was presented last week during the impeachment proceedings, we can say pretty safely that there was a conspiracy to keep people from carrying out the very simple task of certifying the race on January 6th, and that it did block congressional officers. So I know when you hear about lawsuits of this kind, I think it sounds kind of fantastic in the minds of people, and they think, well, how, how uh, accurate could this be? But the truth is, um, if you read the code section, again, 42 USC 1985-1, people can look that up you see it actually looks to be very accurate depiction of what we just saw. And look, the NAACP um, and Congressman Thompson have a record in this area. What they have long stood for is, is trying to make sure that folks that would use intimidation, especially around racial issues, but also around just constitutional issues that they were kept to account. And so, you know, the president is no longer protected by any type of um, immunity from this type of lawsuit. Uh, it will be a very interesting federal case. And again, I, I would just submit to you, Desiree, when you, when you read the actual language of the act, it does sound a lot like what we saw happen on January 6th. I, I do want to say but where I think Congress. Immunity, I was going to say he did have presidential immunity because it happened while he was still president. At that time, but but that wouldn't have an effect on the uh, ability to bring this now, uh, and so uh, that immunity is exhausted, and and now he could be subject to actions, I believe, that even occurred while he was in office, and 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 I thought this was kind of interesting, but if you'll remember, immediately following the impeachment proceedings last week, um, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell made a long statement of what he thought the legal pathway forward for this president was. And he mentioned that, you know, in his estimation, legal jeopardy can attach for someone, even if they committed acts while they had a certain amount of protection. But now that those protections no longer exist. So again, this is going to be interesting. There, there, this is going to be an interesting case. I'll tell you this. Let me just say, our attorney general joined a Texas lawsuit a couple months ago that was basically challenging 
uh, the way that election procedures played out in other states. It was an absurd lawsuit. Uh, the courts said it was absurd. The, sec the Supreme Court, which is a overwhelmingly conservative Supreme Court, slapped it down in two sentences and basically in those two sentences spoke to how absurd it was. This is a lot more substantive than the, than the case filed by Attorney General Lynn Fitch. This is much more grounded in reality and actually grounded in constitutional principles. So I think this one will actually get a hearing. Um, I, I, say yeah, yeah. I, look, I'm certainly not going to argue with Brandon about, um, about the law, about, what's, about what is going to stand up in a courtroom and what's not, because obviously he's a very smart lawyer and I never stepped in a law school classroom. Um, but what I can tell you is it's pretty frustrating. I grew up in Yazoo City, Mississippi. My family still lives in Yazoo City, Mississippi, which is, you know, in the heart of, of Congressman Thompson's congressional district. Um, when I drive through the Mississippi Delta and I drive through parts of Hines County uh, that are in the congressman's congressional district, I don't see much progress at all. And it's pretty frustrating and disappointing uh, for someone who cares about the second congressional district, who cares about the Mississippi Delta, to see how bad the struggle is for a lot of people there. A lot of Benny Thompson's voters and a lot of people who are not Benny Thompson's voters. And what is his focus? This is his focus. I think he's done very little to help people in, in, that are his own constituents and uh, I, I don't I don't think that that point is ever really brought up much about about him. And so I'm going to take this time to make that point. And Brandon, hey. your time to disagree. <laughs> well, Desiree, I think it, I know I know we we're up against the clock here. But I mean, that that comment warrants a response. Uh, Congressman Thompson is doing the work uh, of, of the United States and, and the work of um, people that want to see this country live into its highest aspirations. And the truth of the matter is, this was the biggest issue to face us nationally in some time. And it's a historic issue. Um, he has been very attentive on COVID. He is the he is one of the he is the only member of the Mississippi delegation that has consistently said that we have to do continued relief on COVID-19. I don't know where the heads of our other members of Congress are. I don't know what they are seeing that leads them to believe that we don't need further assistance, small business and individual assistance. Um, he's also had a very clear voice about how part of the heart of our democracy is making sure that free and fair elections actually mean something in the greatest known democracy on planet Earth. And so I actually think this is crucial. Um, it's you something, it's a conversation. Wrap it up quick, Brandon. Yeah, just a conversation that needs to happen. I, I would disagree with Austin. I, I think the congressman has been quite effective. Okay, well, we're going to have to end it right there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on At Issue, this podcast. Our listeners, don't forget, you can find previous episodes of At Issue online or listen to this podcast at mpbonline.org or your favorite podcast platform. For day-to-day -day coverage of statewide news, follow MPB News on Twitter and Facebook. And you can watch At Issue every Friday night at 7.30 on MPB television. Stay safe and have a good night. Thanks for listening to the At Issue podcast from MPB News. If you haven't already, subscribe to get new episodes weekly. And don't forget to like, rate, and leave a review. You can also stay in touch with MPB News on Twitter and Facebook. 
For daily news, check out the Mississippi Edition podcast. Thanks for listening.